0: because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. I kept running around it in large or small circles, always looking for something or someone to be able to convince me of my belovedness. Henri Nouwen, The Life of the Beloved. Hello everybody, and welcome back to my series on Aggressively Happy, A realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. You may have noticed a slightly irregular uh, podcast posting schedule, and I will have to apologize for that, um, but also give, a, I think, a a very reasonable justification for it, which is that um, I came down with COVID for the last 10 days, so I have been locked inside in something of a a brain funk as well as a physical funk and so I kind of put some of my plans on hold and and let some of the podcast slip to the side while I healed from that um, I feel like the last two weeks have been a real um, a real kind of embodied test of of the principles and aggressively happy as the world has gone to a more and more desperate point and my own physical health has been in some some not terrible peril, but um, distress. Um, but in a, in a weird way, it's been uh, kind of special to, to rest and to take many of the lessons from my own book as uh, scoldings from myself and to lean into what it looks like to remember that I have a body and um, to uh, cultivating a heart that seeks good and true and beautiful things not ignoring the darkness of the world we're currently experiencing, but as a response to it. Um, last week on my Patreon reading group, we are a few weeks behind. We're going a little slower, so we were doing the chapter on enjoying things unironically. And we read CS Lewis's Learning and Wartime, which was just so poignant, I think for this week. This strange week. Um, you know, last week I was going to take a quick, holiday to celebrate the launch of the book and i was pretty exhausted and on the morning i woke up to take the holiday russia invaded the ukraine and the next day i came down with covid and and so kind of in light of that getting to lean into why does it really matter to cultivate happiness in the midst of this world that staggers from one one um, chaotic event to another Um, but i've been really leaning into that and thinking about it and i do think it matters um, so it's been wonderful to be able to dwell on these things with you all, both on Patreon and through all of your wonderful messages, which I have read and haven't been able to respond to all of them, but it's been really encouraging to me, and just thank you for engaging with me and, and thinking about these things together, and I do hope that together we will kind of be a a gentle movement towards bringing joy and redemption and what is a very chaotic world? Um, all that to say, I am excited to finally be posting the last few episodes in this series. So, um, I've been posting for the last few weeks all of the interview podcasts I did um, for each chapter. The only one I didn't title according to the chapter was My Interview with Rowan Williams, which I thought was appropriate to the chapter of Believe in God, but it felt like I couldn't uh, pigeonhole the former Archbishop of Canterbury, into my uh, release schedule for a podcast, so I let that stand on its own. But it's been really fun to go through these podcasts together and hear all your responses. And this week, I'm going to reshare an old interview, actually, to go with a chapter, Accept Love. And that's because um, one of the interviews we ended up having to cancel because the other guest got COVID. So what a world we're living in. Um, but as I was dwelling on kind of past interviews that I'd done that helped me think about this topic, um, one came to my mind. And that was an interview with John Swinton, Professor John Swinton, who is one of us, one of the scholars I respect most um, as a scholar, but also just as a human being. He is Kind, he signs all of his emails warmly, um, and he really has a deep, deep focus on Jesus. And this chapter in the book, Accept Love, what it's really about is that I think that unless we know that deep down to our core, we are loved by God, that we are loved simply by the nature of being a human being, that there's nothing we can do. Um, to merit the belovedness of God, there's nothing we can really do to separate ourselves from the love of God, that we are fundamentally loved, unless we know that. We always kind of live our lives in this insecure state, where we're kind of looking to other people to answer this question of, am I loved? Am I okay? Am I enough? And I want to read you this little passage from the chapter. Um, And this, in some ways, you know, it's interesting to see what chapters people respond to, because this was... For me personally, one of the most important chapters because I am a, a high capacity person who thinks that I can do everything. And and it's really one of my tendencies to fall into duck syndrome where I'm going along placidly and happily on top while while you know pedaling furiously beneath. Um, because I think that to be okay, to be loved, to be accepted, I need to be perfect. And if we're living that way, everything is high stakes. And, it, and I found in my own life that living that way actually keeps you from loving fully, from doing a good job fully, because your attention, because there's always this part of your brain, this part of your heart that's invested in going, am I okay? Am I enough? So I wanted to read you this, a quick section from, from the chapter. Ironically, refusing the love of God and other people has a tendency to make us intensely self-centered. When you're so wrapped up in thinking about yourself and how unlovable you are, there's no room to think about other people. You don't have the capacity to love people without trying to make them the solution to your deep chasm of loneliness. You're not able to do a job for the pure joy of excellence, and not because you need it to validate you as a valuable, contributing member of society. The whole world becomes an extension of your need to be validated, seen, loved, and approved of. And when the whole world is only as big as your own hurt, it is a very cramped universe indeed. So I wrote this chapter because it's funny. I think that we all kind of know that we need to know that we're beloved of God, um, but for me, kind of getting that deep into my bones really, actually made a difference. It freed me up to to try harder on things, to fail more, um, to fail more fantastically, but also. To throw myself into things because I wasn't so preoccupied um, with myself. I think weirdly accepting love means that you no longer have to keep looking at yourself going, Am I okay? Am I enough? And uh, this bitch um, ends this way. Let me tell you the truest thing about you. Before you did anything useful or said anything clever or helped anyone, you were loved. After you failed or disappointed people or did something stupid... You were loved. You aren't loved because of qualities that might disappear with age. You aren't even loved on the basis of what you will become someday. You are loved completely, eternally, and right now. And that's the crux of this chapter. Um, and when I was thinking about what interview I wanted to put up for this chapter, I thought of, of John Swinton. This interview we did together um, a year and a half ago now, was about what it looks like to love people of different abilities in the church, which is really recognizing that we all need to be loved. And one of his central ideas is thinking about that all of Christian life is about friendship with Jesus and that Jesus's friendship with us is one that bends to our needs. One of the things that he says in the interview is that love has a pace and it's slow. And, um, I, I personally, it's amazing, it's interesting to record interviews and then share them with other people. I personally was blessed by this interview. It, it had an impact and an effect on me. And so when I was thinking about what to release for this chapter, I thought, that's the one. So I hope you all are enjoying the book series. Hope that you have read, bought, read, reviewed the book. Um, and I hope also that this podcast as you dwell on it and listen to John Swinton's knowledgeable and gentle, uh, lovely Scottish accent, um, that it will help you remember that the truest thing about you is that you are loved. I hope you enjoy this interview. God doesn't forget anybody. This week, I talked with Professor John Swinton, the Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen, and the founder of the university's Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. Professor Swinton's research has significantly shaped the field of practical theology, particularly with his work Dementia, Living in the Memories of God, which was awarded the Michael Ramsey Prize for Theological Writing. In this episode, we talk about the theology of memory, God's memory, connecting that to the experience of those whom society often forgets people with dementia, profound intellectual disabilities, and crippling mental illness. One of the ideas that Professor Swinton emphasizes is that practical theology takes into account the needs of different sorts of people, not as some great act of charity, but simply as an act of faithfulness to the call to make disciples of all people. Professor Swinton is as knowledgeable and impressive as he is kind, I found myself pondering our conversation long after it was over. I was encouraged, enriched, and challenged by what Professor Swinton had to share, and I hope you will be as well. Dr. Swinton, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Tell us a bit about you have you have done many things in your life. Uh, when we look at your biography, yeah. you have been a pastor. You have been a professor. You have been what? What is the narrative arc to those things? What led you to write about and be passionate about what you are passionate about?
1: That's a good question. Well, my my background originally was in uh, nursing, so I trained as a mental health nurse, and then I retrained as a nurse with people with intellectual disabilities. So I spent 16 years of my life um, nursing with people with different perspectives on on life and different ways of seeing the world, um, and then. Back in the early 90s, I decided to uh, make a change uh, and move from nursing into, um, well, to do a degree at the university. I thought at that time I would end up in hospital chaplaincy, and I did for a little while. Um, uh, so I trained as a, uh, an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland, thinking I'd go into chaplaincy, but then as soon as I started at university, I, I really like practical theology, and I knew that that was what I wanted to do with the rest of my uh, my life. And so I, I finished my degree, I finished my PhD, and then I uh, got a job in Glasgow for a while. Uh, and so Almost as soon as I got my job in Glasgow University, a job came up in Aberdeen. So I was there for a term, then I came back to Aberdeen, and I've been here forever. Okay. First is my 20, 22nd year or something like that.
0: Um, I told you this for the the interview, but the reason that i got I found your work was through actually tutoring for practical theology and the way you write about theology but rooted in the real what it looks like to minister to people in their experience is is so it's very unique. I don't think everyone is able to write in that way, so it's really wonderful to do your research and um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your book from I think it was in two thousand and twelve about Oh, yes, yes, about um, dementia and memory and self. And the thing that I love so much about that is you talk a lot about identity and and memory and how those things interact. And you talk about that specifically with dementia. But I think that's a that's something that kind of plagues the modern world is the question of who am I? Uh, how do I define myself and who i am I in community? so could you tell us a bit about um about what inspired that work and kind of the question of identity and memory
1: yeah well I mean really, the uh, the, uh, the book emerged from was just my experience over the years being with people with dementia and the various mm-hmm. issues that people uh came up with but in particularly the negative issues where the way that dementia is highly stigmatized because you know if you live in a, 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 a kind of culture that really worships intellect and reason to begin to lose your memory and your intellect and your reason is highly challenging mm-hmm. and if you think that that's part of what it means to be a human or fundamental to what it means to be a human then it becomes even more complicated uh, and so I was always struck by two things One, the kind of language that people use around people with disability, which talked about them as if they weren't there anymore. You know, she's not the person she used to be. I I prefer to remember that person the way they used to be. Uh, And the way in which, within health services, uh, people were very well looked after, but there was always an assumption that there wasn't much you could do. Yeah, that's right. So people would be sitting around and be be sitting in front of the television, watching Mm. kids' programs for hours and hours and hours. Um, But then, When I, as a chaplain, go into that kind of situation, the, uh, you know, as soon as you start to do the sacraments, as soon as you start to worship, people come back into the room and they sing and they move and they dance and they do all sorts of things. And it just struck me that actually it may be at least partly our conception of what memory is that's problematic for people with dementia rather than simply that people have forgotten things because they haven't forgotten everything that we think they do. Uh, and tied in with that, is you begin to get the revelation that, okay, um, people with dementia are stigmatized, they're alienated, they're very often discarded, uh, and you get your value from other people. So they're often mm-hmm. be- very devalued, if you don't give, somebody doesn't give you value, you don't have some. And so they are very much a, a, a forgotten people. Mm. So everybody thinks about dementia in terms of forgetfulness, but actually people with dementia are forgotten very often by mm-hmm. a community. And then beginning to think about that theologically, and recognising that God doesn't forget anybody, mm-hmm. and that even though we may forget ourselves, it's mm-hmm. never ourselves that's central to our identity. Our identity is always found in Christ. It's always found in how God sees us, not in how human beings sees it. And so the book itself, the subtitle is "Living in the Memories of God," just simply means that uh, we're not defined by what we. Uh, remember about ourselves or even what our communities remember about ourselves we're defined by who we are in Christ
0: mm. I love that and um, I think that was the thing I was struck by when I was reading it is that sense of being remembered by God and I think we could think of that we could think of that in the sense of well if I forget or if my community forgets but even in that we're almost placing too much emphasis on our own ability to remember and describe ourselves you know I, yeah. I, um, I, re- I was reading an essay recently um, on in Rowan Williams' book on Augustine, where he talks about Augustine's, you know, he has these kind of mind-boggling things about, am I who I remember of myself? But I can't remember things very well, and yet this is, and so that sense of if who we are is defined on this kind of nebulous ability to remember ourselves or to be remembered by That's others, then our identity is always insecure. That's right. But to be remembered in God means that we are always secure no matter how remembered or able to remember we are.
1: That's right, we are, and that's right. But then the, the, the other dimension to that is that it, it's all very well to have that foundational theological belief that we're remembered mm-hmm. by God, but you have to feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to experience that. So it, it's the task of the Christian community to uh, remind us that we're remembered in that that's sense. sense. So, although communities can be problematic, one of the tasks of discipleship, one of the things the Body of Christ needs to do, is to help people feel remembered, remembered. even though they can't remember in that in that sense. Like. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah. so
0: what is what do you think that looks like practically um, for communities to remind people that they are remembered?
1: Well, I think that the key thing is to enable a place of belonging for for mm. people with dementia. And I don't mean simply inclusion, like wheeling people into church and wheeling them back out again. Really taking the time to recognize two things. One that, for Christians, that these people are disciples. Mm. They don't cease to be disciples because they've forgotten some certain things. They are mm. disciples in it, who are in a different kind of experience. Mm. And so therefore, if they're going to have a place of belonging, it's not an act of charity. Mm. Uh, It's it's an act of faithfulness Mm. to create spaces where everybody within the body of Christ can come together. So I think friendship, Mm. opening up space in your life to be with people uh, who see the world differently, supporting families who have really difficult times sometimes Mm. with people, both psychologically and physically. Mm. Uh, So creating, creating spaces for respite. Allowing the challenge of the presence of people with dementia to shape and form the way we think about worship mm-hmm. and uh, so that we can include people in worshipful ways as well as simply just in terms of the presence, so I think these basic pastoral strategies mm-hmm. that emerge from that kind of theological core are fundamentally important for uh, uh, operationalizing the theology mm-hmm. if that's right way putting it yeah I think that
0: I think this this topic, particularly with dementia. Resonated with me because as a as a child I grew up in very close Contact with someone who had Alzheimer's my mother's best friend um, Growing up she moved back to the states after having lived in Austria for a long time because her mother had Alzheimer's And I would often play at their house and and stay there when my mother would be working And I grew up in a friendship with Larla and I knew that Larla couldn't remember everything But there wasn't this sense of this is a special thing that I do with this very special person It was just she is She is a part of us, and she is a part of our family, and she's experiencing the world differently, but she is a person with a soul, and making space, making room, relating to and friendship isn't some kind of um, extra special duty. It's kind of the bare minimum of just treating people like humans.
1: It's Um, what Christians do.
0: It's what Christians do, and I think that relates because you've, of course, written about this, but you've also written about many other things, you know, even just mental disabilities or... I, that was actually what I got to do a lot of your reading on um, in the class that I tutored for. And so, uh, which helps us rethink what it is to be a Christian. Because I think a lot of times yeah. we can have in our minds, um, being Christian is believing these certain things or taking it off these rocks or even being able to do or perform these certain things. Uh, but if that is not what being a Christian is, and what do you think being a Christian is? And how does how do other people's experiences, whether that's with mental disability
1: or dementia, how does that reshape what we think about what it is to be a Christian? Yeah, well, being a Christian is, is being with Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting things that you notice in uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's account of Matthew's call is that, you know, he's walking along, he calls to Matthew, Matthew hears and Matthew responds and follows Jesus. Now, Matthew, according to the scripture, didn't know anything about who Jesus was. So it wasn't like a cognitive act in, in the way that we might think about it. Like. And Bonhoeffer says that if you want to uh, think differently, you have to go outside the text. You, you, text. You, have, you can make a historical analysis, you can make a psychological analysis, but the text says, Jesus called, Matthew followed. And likewise, you know, if you look at the lives of the disciples, they were very often confused, cognitively confused, and, and never quite sure who Jesus was, even after the resurrection they had the same. So being with Jesus is not simply an intellectual thing. It is an intellectual thing, because we, 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 need, we should get to know Jesus, we understand that, we have scripture, we have tradition, but that's not all it is. And if you're somebody who doesn't have the, uh, uh, the, the skills to engage with Jesus in that way, there, there are other ways which uh, we can follow Jesus which are not determined by what we know or how we can articulate ourselves
0: mm, Yeah, and I think that's um, at the heart of it is withness and presence and relationality yeah. that, that was the thing that you know clicked I think with a lot of my students was you know they're all these very clever very driven St. Andrews students and I remember one of them who always wrote these very complicated papers and he came to me and he was like so Christianity is not about my capacity to understand God, but about God's movement towards being with me. And yeah. and I was like, yes, that's, that's right. It and that's the good news, you know, to not to that's know exactly right. to know that God is with us, and um, and that relates to something else that I liked. I was um, watching a recent talk of yours, which i probably put in the show notes, um, where you talked a bit about. The idea of the speed that God goes with us, that Jesus came and walked with us in the world. Could you say a little bit about that idea, the speed that God matches for humans?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an idea that comes from a Japanese theologian, Kusaka Kiyama. And he points out that the average speed that a human being walks at is three miles per hour. So Jesus, who is God, walks at three miles per hour. Uh, Jesus, who is God, who is love, walks at three miles per hour. So love has a speed, and it's slow. And in order to love, you need to slow down and take time for those things that the world considers to be trivial and unimportant, in that sense. And one of the things, when you're with people with profound intellectual disabilities or people with uh, dementia, is you need to move into that time frame you to slow down and take time for things that people don't always notice and when you do that you actually see quite wonderful things sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the Three Mile and God is just like a metaphor of the incarnation but it's a practical metaphor that helps us to, to see how we can genuinely be present with people with disabilities.
0: I love that idea and I think also like you said when we slow down we also learn and grow and see beautiful things we wouldn't see if we were going at our that's right. a million mile speed I always think of that when I'm with my nieces and nephews who yeah, with kids they're, it's like they're both at this very fast speed but also at this very slow speed <laughs> that's and, right and, uh, but when I'm with them and I'm jolted out of my adult world I am able to see and experience a love and an attention to small things that I wouldn't yeah. see when I'm that's right running at a faster pace
1: That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, and I think in funny ways, we've all kind of been adjusted to the speed, to a different speed in this season as we find ourselves in lockdown and um, and I think that we get too used to a fast speed of the world and it actually limits our, our vision, our ability to see. What God is doing. I think it us. does.
1: I mean, the, the problem with lockdown is that it certainly slows us down, but it also alienates a lot of people. Yes. So you have a, a completely change, a complete change of gear and speed, but also a complete change of relational environment. Mm-hmm. And that's necessarily very helpful. No. So mental no. health issues in lockdown are, are kind of, you know, exacerbated by the slowness and the lack of structure. Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's complicated.
0: Yes, it is very complicated and um, brings about a whole other slew of pastoral practical issues I, I'm sure yeah, that you've yeah, been thinking is. about, yeah. So are you working on anything new lately in theology? Are there any projects that are on your brain these days?
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got a new book coming out, in, uh, when is it, next month called Finding Jesus in the Storm <laughs> and it's, a, for the past two or three years I've been having a series of uh, conversations with people with with, um, severe mental health challenges. Mm. So people who are living with schizophrenia, bipolar Mm. disorder or major depression. Not to try and uh, work out what causes it or how we should treat it, but to try to understand what it feels like, Mm. what does it feel like to to experience voices, what does it feel like to have highs and lows in relation to the people's spiritual lives. And so this book is, is all about how people have articulated to me over time what it feels like and how, 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 what it feels like to encounter God in these, the, through these different experiences. Uh, and what kinds of uh, spiritual support are helpful, what kinds mm. of spiritual support are not helpful. Because sometimes churches can be less than helpful when it comes to mental health issues. And, and so that's, that's taken up my horizon for the past uh, two or three years. Um, So that's coming out next next year, and then I'm I'm doing the uh, what's called the Didsbury Lectures at Mm. the Nazarene Theological College, uh, looking at what does evil do. So that will be interesting. It's exploring a slightly different uh, perspective on what evil is and how we should how we should respond and resist it. Mm. So that has not been very cheerful, but it's been interesting. I know. I was
0: going to say that's those are light topics indeed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I look very forward, especially to um, reading the book on, when did you say that's coming out, the book on mental illness? And...
1: It's called uh, Finding Jesus in the Storm, and it's mm. coming out in September.
0: Okay, great, right, when this will be coming out. So something else I wanted to ask you about uh, is kind of, you talked about the way that people come to life in liturgy sometimes, um, That's that's something that kind of reawaken something or awaken something that's always there and um, and also the role of music because so tell us a bit about that
1: yeah I mean it's just, over time when people engage in their spiritual practices the uh, your body begins to take the shape and the form of mm-hmm. your spirituality and Paul uh, talks about the idea that you become letters to Jesus mm-hmm. At least that's that's the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, which is nice. You can let, in other words, your body has been inscribed with that message of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's, just, it's just what you do, uh, and you can see that very clearly with, with people with de- uh, uh, advanced dementia who have mm-hmm. you know worshipped for, for years. Now they can no longer cognate things in the way that they used to do, but their body remembers things. They, they still experience and encounter God, but in different ways. And music is is important for that. Because very often with uh, certain forms of dementia, it's not that you lose the memory, it's that you lose the connections, the neural connection between your ability to comprehend it and your ability to bring it to mind. Um, and because your brain's plastic, you know, neuroplasticity means that it's constantly configured and reconfiguring, very often it can re- when you, uh, your brain can reconfigure uh, itself. Oliver Sachs is very good. He's got a book called Mo- Musicology, and he's got a last chapter on that. He says that the brain can reconfigure itself, and very often it does that by passing the impulses through that the, these parts of the brain process music, mm. and so you can actually access um, a memory when the music is playing. Mm. And of course, when you hear when you hear uh, music. It brings back emotions and feelings and memories, and so you access not just a memory, but a whole experience, and stuff, which is why people are very often happy or sad, depending mm. on what the, what the memory is. Um, but that only lasts as long as the music lasts. Mm. So as soon as the music stops, the memory fades away. And so the person may still have a, a warm feeling uh, or a, a, sad, a feeling of sadness, and eventually that'll go. So the key thing there is to <clears throat> always be in the moment, Mm-hmm. and to recognize that when that's happening, to be with a person in, in the mm-hmm. midst of that. Recognizing that it's not going to last forever, but it'll last for long enough for something to happen. And so if you combine that with, the, Paul says, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks with groans you can't understand, mm-hmm. then you can see that actually something deeply spiritual is happening through all of these processes. Mm-hmm. You can reduce it to psychology if you, if you wanted to, but you could also reinterpret it theologically
0: yeah that's kind of amazing it's almost sounds like music you know as a writer does a lot of literature it almost sounds like music kind of casting this temporary spell this ability to draw us back into its into its yeah. to memories into time and um and that's such a, a beautiful thing and i remember that with my grandparents too the way that a hymn can that's right immediately click back into their memory and they can remember all the words and all of the uh, in a time that they usually couldn't access those things.
1: Aye, yeah, that's, it. And, yeah, that's yeah.
0: it. It's a great gift that God gives us. I always like to ask people this. Um, are there any works of art that for you are particularly spiritually meaningful?
1: Well, I've, I've always been taken by Matthias Grunewald's painting mm. uh, uh, of the, the crucified Christ and it's mm. part of a triptych. But it, <laughs> Because when you see that picture, there's two things that you notice straight away. Uh, Well, it's three things, but two things that are significant. The shape of Jesus' hands in that picture is incredible because they are clasped together in absolute agony as the nails have gone through his muscle and tendon. That's quite unusual for pictures of the crucifixion, which tend to be very placid and, and Jesus tends to be, but he was in mortal agony. And then, if you look even closer, you can see the pockmarks on Jesus' body. It's, it's covered in pockmarks because it was part of a trip to in a, a plague hospice. Um, and so this Greenwald wants to emphasize that God suffers with us and that, that the crucifixion is not something as romantic. It's something that reflects the pain of the world. But God is always with us in the midst of even the most severe suffering. I just I could watch that painting forever in a kind of a kind of uneasy, dissonant way. Mm-hmm. But I always find that very profoundly important because it, it just reminds me of where God is mm-hmm. in the midst of what's sometimes a very dark world.
0: Yes, and that is his, that he enters into our suffering and our evil. Uh, it is he's That's not right. he's not distant or um, indifferent, but is inside of it. And right. um, that, that Christ's body is a body that has suffered, and right. and that, that is what we are part of, and um, I think that that is a it's a very meaningful painting to me as well, um, because of that because it's a picture of God making himself vulnerable to the world that we are vulnerable to and um, That's right yeah and and that is such a meaningful thing and it relates to one other thing I wanted to pick up before we uh, kind of bring this to a close, which is, I remember reading in one of your, in one of your bits on um, profound mental disabilities, um, the idea that if someone is in the body of Christ and they are, and they have Down syndrome, that the body of Christ has Down syndrome in it. I think we lack the imagination to see that sometimes.
1: Yeah. What marks the body of Christ is diversity, not normality. I mean, it's the diversity of Paul's image of the body of Christ. that is so startling and so countercultural then and now. And so the idea that we have to conform everybody to a certain norm seems to me to be the antithesis of what Paul is trying to say in the midst of the, uh, his imagery on, on the body of Christ. The second thing is, is in relation to, uh, you know, very often people talk about disability in terms of healing, uh, either healing in the present. That we should you know transform some transform somebody into some kind of norm or healing in the future that you'll be transformed into some, into some kind of norm. but i just almost struck by tom Wright's uh, right in, in, in uh, surprised by hope when he talks about the resurrection and the resurrection body in, in one Corinthians 15. and he, he just points out that uh, paul said our bodies will be um, not replaced but transformed and likewise, when it comes to the New Jerusalem, the, the old Jerusalem will be not replaced, but transformed. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's something of the bodies that we have now that has something kind of eternal significance. Who knows what that means? It will be transformed, but then we will all be transformed. So it's not like a person with Down syndrome will be suddenly transformed into you or me, or if we consider ourselves to be representative of normality. All of us will be So that to me is a very humbling thing because none of us can point to that within the other that we know will be retained and that we know won't be transformed. So we should really take Paul's uh, call for unity and diversity seriously and not consider one another to be normal or abnormal, but just to recognize that all of us are together and all of us will be transformed, but in this moment we just simply have to be together. Uh, and represent that which, which we we believe to be true
0: uh, yes I think that's beautiful and profound it's something that in our world that really does want a sense of conformity in various ways is a really radical a radical and a loving thing um, something, that's right. something to work on our whole lives um, yeah to really be present with people to see them and to allow people to be present to us in all of our um, diversity yeah. as well thank you so much for joining me no thank podcast. you for the invitation this nice has been so lovely and I can't wait for you to listen to this I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's Aggressively Happy podcast as a reminder Aggressively Happy is out and in the world so make sure to go buy your copy wherever books are sold and then if you love it please leave a review um, wherever you bought it from thank you all for listening and I hope you'll join me next week